0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. The transhumanist dream, the merging of humans with machines, may soon be a reality. Elon Musk's Neuralink, is developing quickly, and before long, with the rise of more forms of human biotechnology, we may find that more and more of us are becoming half human, half machine. In this discussion, Luke Robert Mason questions what it means to be human and glimpses into the possibilities of our technologically enhanced future. Futures theorist Luke Robert Mason is a researcher, a filmmaker, and digital media artist. He has been a frequent contributor to BBC Click Radio, The Guardian, Discovery Channel, Vice Motherboard, and Wired Magazine, as well as Futurism.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Luke Robert Mason to Philosophy for Our Times.
2: My... Exploration of Future Humans began about a decade ago when I met a man who had an ear surgically implanted into his arm. And I did pretty much what anybody here would do on meeting a man with an ear in their arm. I asked him the question, why? Why do you have an ear surgically implanted into your arm? And this man, an Australian 70-year-old performance artist called Stellark, looked at me with this, this big smile on his face and he said, uh, why not? You know? And he continued with this, this idea that we, uh, forgive the accent, we, we live in an age of circulating flesh which sounded as weird as you would expect from a guy with an ear surgically implanted into his arm. But he went on to explain how, for example, my blood or or in fact your blood could be flowing through my body tomorrow or your organs could quite literally be in my body tomorrow which I just said out loud and I just realized it sounds really weird. But what I mean is, is for example, if we're the same blood donor type, your blood could quite literally be flowing through my body tomorrow. And if you're an organ donor and I needed some liver or kidneys or maybe some eyes, uh, we could potentially have an exchange of organs because we, we live in this world of, of biotechnology that allows us to do a multitude of weird, wonderful and wired things. Uh, but the sorts of decisions we make when it comes to how to utilize that biotechnology is very much tied with the the cultural tropes of what we perceive as important in the 21st century. So uh, you see people with slightly, uh, slightly higher cheekbones, slightly surgically manipulated, slightly thinner noses, slightly plumper lips, slightly larger breasts, slightly longer... Uh, There's a multitude of these things that we can do, and yet we limit what we want to do based on what we consider cultural uh, uh, tropes, tropes of beauty. So in Stellar's eyes, the fact that the biotechnology exists to have an ear in your arm, to him it's almost astonishing that not everybody has an ear in their arm. In actual fact, if the technology is available, then surely it's a lack of imagination not to do these weird and wonderful things to your body, to engage with alternative anatomies. And now. Stellark is is kind of an outlier when it comes to examples of these sorts of guys. There's a bunch of these folks, they call themselves biohackers, and they have all sorts of odd things surgically implanted into their body. You've got your run-of-the-mill biohacker. This is like biohacker 1.0. These are the startup guys. These are the guys with the RFID tags surgically implanted under their skin, and these are really the biohacker bros. You know, the only reason they really have that done is like owning Bitcoin. Like they they think they're living in the future. Nobody actually knows what it does, but they love talking about it at dinner parties incessantly. And the ironic thing is these guys with the RFID tags under their skin, usually the only thing they actually use it for is keeping their cryptocurrency wallets. So, there you got these guys who kind of exist in their own little bubble, and then you've got the weirder folks who are experimenting with alternative senses. You've got companies that are emerging like Cyborg Nest, which allows you to implant a small vibrating device into the middle of your chest so you can feel due north, essentially giving you a brand new sense. So, we have all of these incidables, embeddables, wearables, swallowables, the imagination is really the place through which we have to decide what we're going to do with this thing. And, and inevitably there's someone in the U.S a guy called Rich, he's he's an odd individual, he's a wonderful individual, but a very odd individual, who developed the Lovetron 9000, and I'm sure you can guess what the Lovetron 9000 does. it's It's inserted into the pubic fat above the penis, and it vibrates, and the wonderful thing about it is that it's wirelessly charged, so I don't exactly know how or when he does that, but, again, he sees that as something that he wants, and therefore he will do it. It's the realization of what uh, transhumanist philosopher Max Moore called morphological freedom. If we have access to these tools, then, then why not do these things? And you're all sitting there going, okay, this is this is." kind of weird. Why does this even apply to me? But research has been done to show that pretty much 92% of people want to change something about their body. But here's 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 the wonderful thing about some of these devices. They're accessible and they're doing weird and wonderful things to the body. They're doing weird and wonderful things that we need to investigate to to understand the trajectory for the future human. And there's, there's sorts of embeds that we're getting are creating this idea of profound embodiment. So it's for the first time that when this stuff is placed under the skin that individuals, they start to change their relationship to the device. And the best way to describe this is with, a, with an example of a guy called Neil Harbisson. So Neil Harbisson is a colorblind artist, and he has an antenna surgically implanted into his head that allows him to hear color. Now, the wild thing about Neil Harbisson is that antenna, he's had it for over a decade. It's now surgically implanted into his skull. Before that, it was a wearable device. And for Neil, that that antenna is no longer a tool or technology. He sees it quite literally as an organ. Going up to Neil and touching his antenna is like if I tried to touch your nose, you'd find it kind of odd. And he's so integrated it into his body's schema that he now dreams in sono chromatic dreams. So he'll have these dream states where all of the colors in his dream will match the uh, the agency of the device that that sends these light waves to sound waves through his skull. And again, Neil is an outlier but he talks about being psychological cyborgs. You know, you guys are going, oh, this cyborg thing is kind of stupid, it's kind of weird, it's kind of fringe, but you know we love to say I bet you all have iPhones in your pockets, you know, nestled next to your genitals or next to your heart. So to a degree that all makes us cyborgs, question mark? And we'll we'll get to that shortly because the stuff that I really am interested in is when it does affect neurophysiology, neuroplasticity, when, when these sorts of devices change the relationship in the brain, where well, we start to accept that this is no longer an external tool technology device, it's, it's actually part of ourselves. And the place I saw that most beautifully demonstrated was, was after an event very much like this. There was a guy, the late, great Nigel Ackland. Nigel Ackland, for those who don't know, was the uh, pioneering pilot of the B-bionic prosthetic limb. So he had this beautiful fiberglass prosthetic limb. And I used to witness, he would stand on stages like this and show everybody his, his bionic prosthetic limb. And he was, he was a working class man. He lost his arm in a, uh, in a uh, factory accident. And people would look with desire At this fiberglass object that he was holding up in the sky and I would see people come up to him afterwards and and grab him outside of the the speaker's tent and go oh my god how do I get one of those they had this kind of weird techno fetishism for what they perceived to be a vision for the future of humanity and Nigel Nigel would look at him with a wry smile and he would go uh, Well mate, it's the most exclusive club in the world and it's gonna cost you an arm or a leg to get in, so you've gotta pick. You know, a lot of people would ask Nigel, do you feel enhanced, are you enhanced? By having the prosthetic limb, you lost your arm, yes, but now you have this beautifully designed prosthetic from b Bionic, do you feel enhanced? And in answer to that question, he would rotate his wrist 360 degrees and say, well, I'm not enhanced, but I'm certainly differently abled. And anybody who does think I'm enhanced should realize that being able to turn your wrist 360 degrees becomes a real challenge when it comes to wiping your own ass. You know, For him, this thing was, may have looked beautiful, may have been a, a vision of the future of humanity, but in reality, if you know anything about prosthetic limbs, those things are very uncomfortable to wear. He would sweat during the day. He couldn't wait to take the thing off. He really was just there on stage showing people this thing, and people were looking wide-eyed, hoping that that could be a potential prototype for the future human. And all of this stuff is problematic for a number of reasons, but one that we're gonna focus on uh, today, which is how transhumanists, and these are the guys who wanna extend their body into into the future ad infinitum, how these guys approach this sort of stuff. How they see future technology as the thing that they can use and then take the body and make it a platform for that technology that they've seen out in the world. And the challenge with transhumanists is they have this kind of weird understanding of how evolution works. You know, largely, and before I do this, the thing with the, 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 the folks who consider themselves transhumanists is, is this, this weird understanding of evolution. And to them, they really hate the fact that evolution is this weird, unguided, blind process that's kind of fumbling its way through history, doing the survival of the fittest thing, and hopefully ending up with us here. They they take that almost offensively. They think evolution is bad, and what they want is they want designer evolution. They wanna take the reins. They wanna control the trajectory through which the future human and the future body will look and feel like. And then here's the funny thing, you you ask a transhumanist, hey, man, take a chill pill. Like, why do you think that you have the ability to take the reins of evolution? And they'll turn around and they'll go, well, evolution created intelligence so that I could take the reins of evolution. And you go, well, wait, wait a minute. Your problem with evolution—that was, was a blind, unguided process that kind of fumbled its way to intelligence and humanity—and now you're telling me there was a plan, yeah, that something somewhere was guiding this thing to so the point at which, wah, and now Kurzweil can go. All right, we'll take it from here, Darwin. We'll uh, we'll see where we can we can go from here. And and what I find kind of odd about the whole thing is that transhumanists would sit there and go, we are becoming gods. And I'm like, you're becoming a thing you don't even believe in? So how do you know that's going to actually work out? That issue that we're constantly struggling with when we ask this being human question, which is, are humans separate from nature or do do we come from nature? Because if we say we come from nature, we kind of then make the argument that the coming from nature piece is the justification for human intervention into the next stage of what we're going to become. It's like uh, any human intervention into human biology must be natural because we're of nature, and we're making these decisions, so therefore it's come from nature. And you sit there and you go, okay, fun, but is that something necessarily that that we should be using as the guiding principle for how, and why, and when we're going to design this stuff. Because essentially, what I'm trying to say is it used to be the fact that the body and environment was the thing that defined what humanity would become. That's the kind of thing that would control the destiny of humanity. And now these guys are going, hey, humanity? That thing that should control the destiny of environment and body, and that's how we end up with ideas of the Anthropocene. You know, it's the human age. We are affecting the environment through our activity. And I don't know about you, but how's that working out? And then they want to go and do that to the body. You have to go. Mm, let's pump the let's pump the brakes here a little, because the transhumanist community. What are you? really want to do, when you, when you get them in the bar afterwards, go find Adam Sandberg, he's a, he's a fun drinking buddy, and you get them in the bar afterwards and you scratch them a little bit and you find out what they're really interested in, and it turns out they're interested in fixing things, and it's not fixing things as in repairing things, it's fixing things as in, hey, this like human thing that I've got right now here in the 21st century, I kind of like this, and I want to fix this, like fix it in space and time. And you see that express, I mean usually it's straight white guys saying this, but they want this kind of way in which they're operating fixed in space and, and, and time, and you see that reflected in the sorts of technology that they're developing. So the longevity technology, the sorts of technology that are gonna allow us to live hopefully ad infinitum, as is the goal. That stuff's really about taking you at around 30 years old and just holding that space in time. You know, biologically, that's a great place to be. How do we load a bunch of drugs onto the human at that point in time, the point at which we are, um, uh, as they perceive it, uh, most uh, uh, biologically kind of set for the world and continue that ad infinitum. And then you've got the the cryonics guys. These are the guys who want to freeze everything. They literally want to go, hey, this thing, let's not wave goodbye. Let's go, yep, we want more of that, please. Let's stick us on ice. You know, they literally want to freeze a moment in time and extend that into the future as if this 21st century life is the thing that is worth preserving. And then you've got the mind uploading guys, who are the best guys to talk to because I just think it's mad and they want to upload their minds into computers and they want to live in virtual environments that look, when you ask them, very similar to the world in which they're living now. But they have slightly more money, a faster car, and they're gonna live on that server rack hedonistically until the end of time. And let's face it, if we do have a uh, energy crisis, those guys are the first guys we're switching off, the guys in the, um, the server rack. But you've got to give transhumanists A little bit of credit because the wonderful thing about transhumanists is at least they're techno positive you know at least they believe there is a future that's kind of a fun place to be in that's that's kind of a a fun place to play in because the opposite well the opposite is nihilism and the opposite is accelerationism you know what let's just accept our fate roll over, hope the AI comes in, replaces our intelligence, and turns the world into some form of weird plastic glob in which AI is now the dominant form of intelligence. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound great. And part of the motivations for some of these trajectories are, again, this fear of what might come next, this fear of what might replace us. And that fear is, is, is best encapsulated in the weird character that is Elon Musk. And Elon wants to create this thing called Neuralink. You know, what Elon's scared of is the fact that we're not, no longer going to be the dominant form of intelligence, and the dominant form of intelligence is going to be some form of AI. So how do we deal with this form of AI? Well, we enhance our human brains to deal with the speed and complexity of the digital environments in which AI will be a better and more efficient worker inside of the system that we generated and created in the first place. Now, the ironic thing is like a week ago, Elon was like, we're gonna create Tesla AI. So I'm like, in terms of self-fulfilling prophecy, this guy's creating the problem and the solution, which by the way, is great in terms of marketing. You know, you create the supply and the demand. And we have got to those tricky words, these words that always kind of reappear. When we have these sorts of conversations, especially at the Institute for Art and Ideas, which is, I guess, the environment we find ourselves in. You know, the environment we find ourselves in today is a very technologically mediated environment. It's a technologically mediated environment empowered by capitalism, and we're looking at this thing as a threat to our jobs, and we're going, any form of advantage that I can get actually sounds like a good idea to me. But the problem is, or at least the, the thing we forget, is that we created that system in the first place, you know? So we created that system, and then we're re-engineering ourselves to exist better in a system that we created. It's like sending a convict to prison and they come out and they're a more efficient convict. You know, it's the same sort of thing. And what happens then is that these tech environments, they end up weakening human resilience. We start devaluing this whole being human thing. You know, we see ourselves as always and already disabled. Oh, if only I had these brand new attachments, I'd look so cool. If only I had the chip in my brain, I could be as as, as crazy and as wild, and I could live in virtual weird environments. And, and we kind of fantasize about this, this future, which basically runs on the operating system of of corporate capitalism. They're generating that desire in the same way the desire is being generated for the thinner noses, larger lips situation that we were talking about. And to realize why that's kind of a, a false direction, we need to return again back to that word evolution. You know, we need to confront that word evolution and realize that it's not about survival of the fittest as in any one individual. This is where they've made the mistake. It's like, all right, survival of the fittest, I'm gonna enhance myself to be the most fit and then survive at infinitum into the future. It's a very individualist ideology which kind of matches with the individualist ideology of Western corporate capitalism. You know, the whole thing kind of interfaces, ironically, in, in a kind of very safe and consumable way. What we need to realize is that evolution is actually about collective survival. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I kind of want to do this human thing with you. You know, I think it'd be way much more interesting than living in my own little silicon box on a server rack somewhere, living out my weird and wonderful fallacies and and what we need to then... Fallacies? Fantasies! Yeah. (laughs) Oh, this talk is full of fallacies. Uh, and Zero fantasies. Um, So what we need to then do is we need to realize that in actual fact, humanity isn't this platform. Humanity, if anything, is less about jumping from paradigm shift to paradigm shift, and it's about a flow through time. You know, It's a collective activity of coming into being, all together, by the way. We, we kind of have to do this together. We can't just you know, splice off and all do our own little transhumanist experiments and split. I mean, some people think that's, that's OK. We need to realize that we're kind of just here to contribute and then get out of the way. There's so much that's special about you, but at the same time, it's only you. And there's lots of other yous and theys and wes and all around you. And if that's the thing we preserve, we very quickly dance away from these individualist ideas of how we're gonna extend our humanity, my humanity, I humanity throughout space and time. And we're realizing that in weird and wonderful ways. It's no wonder we've got this kind of weird self-esteem crisis. We're in a situation where human progress is so intimately tied with economic progress that in actual fact economic progress is the thing that we think is going to guide human progress. But I guess let's pull away from horror just ever so slightly because I want to smile. Ever so slightly and, and realize that there's a multitude of other things that we can actually do in the here and now that don't require a device that you have to charge. you know. And we're beginning to see those bubble up in the wellness industry, which is problematic in its own right because the wellness industry is an industry. And what the wellness industry does is through you know, meditation apps, as they sell wellness through technology that was taken away from us by technology. So again, it's kind of like a, how did you guys, How did you guys do that? There was actually, um, I did this, and and, uh, Rupert Sheldrake is a problem. So because of Rupert, I I, I did this Vipassana meditation retreat, which is like 10 days of silent meditation. Reluctantly, I dragged myself along to this thing, and and it's like 10 days of silent meditation. And you reconnect with your brain, and you kind of lock away your devices. But the interesting thing about the whole process was at the end, there was this guy, this Australian. Yeah, it's always Australians. Australian guy who used to sit in the canteen in the corner with a knife, cutting his apple from his hand, just staring at everybody intensely. And I don't know if anybody's done the passive meditation, but on the last day you can talk to everybody. And I beeline to this guy. I was like, "Dude, like, who are you?" You know, he had this kind of Joe Rogan-esque kind of look about him. I was like, "Who are you?" He goes, I want to be a, learn to be a more efficient stock trader. I go, what the hell are you on about? He goes, so here's the thing. The boys, what they used to do is they used to do a load of cocaine, and you do a bunch of cocaine, and then you make stock trades because that's how you compete with the algorithm. But now what you do is you quiet your mind and you meditate and um, and then you make the trade. You know, I'm like, oh God, no, this is this is not this is not the the, the direction that we should be should be going in. And 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 what we should instead do is optimize for. Uh, Anders said, it actually, on a, on a panel I did earlier, that we should optimize for magic. And I mean that in the, in the true sense of the word magic. There, there's this phrase, um, which is any, uh, any sufficiently advanced form of technology is indistinguishable from magic. And we go, oh, wow, iPhones are magic. And that's true if we consider magic to be sleight of hand, illusion, and deception. But if we look at real magic, Magic with a CK, which is, uh, we're not going to get into it, but for want of a better word, it's really about a connection with the ineffable and the unexplainable and the metaphysical. If we engage in, in that sort of magic, it turns out human beings are so much better at doing that than technology. And everybody's like, what the hell are you talking about, Aleister Crowley? And what I mean is like all of these, these, these weird aspects of humanity that we can't explain, that, we, that can't be captured by the market, things like uh, a precognitive dream work. I mean, seriously, write down your dreams. Your dreams are way more interesting than the latest Netflix series. You know? And sometimes, if you read the work of Eric Vargo, sometimes those things can reveal the future in weird and wonderful ways. That's a, that's a whole other talk. But embrace intuition. You know? we, we, we take scientific knowledge as the most important form of knowledge, but what about intuition in a, in, a, in a secular society? Embrace just weirdness, you know? Embrace this kind of, this being together thing that we finally get to go back, back to do. Embrace fuzziness and all these other aspects of humanity that don't sit into neat buckets, and, and because of that, they can't be easily consumed by capitalism and they're a little bit anti-production. Get into art. Do what my, my friend Halodonto does. Be, become a cyborg artist and just do stuff for the hell of doing it. Because with this self-esteem crisis, I feel like we're not giving ourselves enough credit. You know, we kind of got this far. And and if we're looking at waving goodbye to being human, then sure, let's wave goodbye to being human under rampant capitalism. Bye-bye. And let's wave hello to a doing human, doing this thing called human. A humane way of being. And why should we amplify these things? Well, as my guy, my friend with his ear in his arm said to me about a decade ago, why not? Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iI.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
0: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers.